Okay, today's reading is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives and teach and counsel each other with, with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Right, we're going to look at Colossians 3 and those verses. verses well, we're going to look at one particular part of it, really. Uh, but we read 12, verses 12 to 17. But I particularly want to look at verse 15. There is a lot of conflict in the world, and there always has been, of course. Uh, human beings seem quite intent on fighting each other. Uh, when a punch is thrown or a bullet fired, there will need to be some kind of response, of course. Uh, we might decide not to retaliate. We might even be able to forgive. But sometimes we just want revenge. We just want payback. If you've hurt me, I'm going to jolly well hurt you. Occasionally, of course, the stakes are much higher. Uh, occasionally, we recognize uh, a bigger kind of evil that is at play in the world, which is so dangerous that we have to resist it. You know, what I mean is some wars are sadly necessary uh, as responses to what's happening in the world. But all of all wars are a tragedy, uh, because one thing is for sure. God did not create us to kill each other. The aim of creation, after all, was that us in creation will enter and share in God's rest, Genesis 1. <clears throat> the hope of the prophets through the Old Testament was, was that God's rest and, and God's shalom, his peace, would be restored to the world. And therefore the fulfillment of God's new creation at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22 is the healing of the nations. At the beginning of this letter, to the Colossians, the gospel was summarized as God making peace. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Peace. At, a time, at the time when this letter was written, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. And at the time he wrote it to the Christians in Colossae, so this was in the first century, there was a phrase that was very much being heralded by the Roman Empire. And it was the Latin, in Latin, it's Pax Romana, which literally means Roman peace. The Roman Empire at that time had extended its borders further than, than ever before. Uh, it was prospering. It had a new stability in its leadership and its military forces had held back pretty much any threat of invasion. And the empire was therefore being heralded as the people's savior, the bringer of peace to the people. 
And this phrase, the peace of Rome, was used by its emperors for a few generations. Later on, it was even minted on some of their coins, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. In reality, of course, this peace of Rome was the peace of the Roman sword. Uh, it was still conflict, really. This was the peace of a military power that was simply bigger and stronger and harsher than any other in the world at the time. Uh, one article puts it like this. Romans regarded peace not as the absence of war, but the rare situation which existed when all opponents had been beaten down and had lost the ability to resist. In other words, the Roman Empire just punched harder than anyone else. So in actual fact, the, the peace of Rome was peace with a Roman boot on your neck. Uh, remember that this was an empire where the streets leading into Rome, its capital, were lined with bodies hanging on crosses. And that was meant to show you what happened if you rebelled against the Roman rule. And, and, and that rule, of course, for many had been forced on them. So this so-called peace was really about the severity of an empire that no one dared to challenge. And as a, as a Christian leader who was called Paul awaited trial before the Roman Empire, he was accused of unsettling things. Paul wrote this letter to his fellow Christians living in Colossae. And in verse 15, he said to them, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, they all would have known about the peace of Rome and, and the rule of Rome and how it worked by threat, by violence, by force. But they had now, these Christians had found a different, much better, much truer kind of rule and kind of peace, the peace of Christ, Paul says, which ruled in their hearts. And it was very significant, by the way, in a world where Rome insisted on its rule and its peace. It's very significant that the Apostle Paul said to them, no, actually, it's the peace of Christ that should rule in your hearts. Jesus himself, of course, had been a victim of, of Rome's violent power. Jesus had been crucified on a Roman cross. But as Jesus stood before the Roman governor, Pilate, who had sent him to that cross, Jesus hinted that the way that he did things would be different. He said his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. Otherwise, his followers, he said, would have done exactly what they all do and, and did. They would have fought to prevent his arrest. But Jesus said his kingdom and the peace that he brings is of a different kind. Rather than meeting violence with violence and hatred with hatred, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus took the nails that we, humanity, are so quick to hammer into each other. And Jesus willingly died for us all and for our sin. And as Jesus hung there, of course, on that cross, he spoke words of forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And I think those words that Jesus spoke there are a truth that he speaks over all humanity in all ages. We, so often, we do not know what we're doing. We are a human race that pins people to crosses in many different ways, more ways than one. With, with, we do it with our words, we do it with our attitudes, our prejudices, as well as literally with our actions. But Jesus came to bring us into his peace, a different way of being, really. Someone else put it like this. Jesus was crucified so that we could stop crucifying one another. Paul says here in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts 
since as members of one body you were called to peace. That tells us that we are called to peace as Christians. The church of Jesus Christ should be defined by this peace of Jesus. In a world of conflict, the church should stand out as a community ruled by peace. I began my Christian life in a setting that, I've got to be honest, it often felt like Christianity was more about conflict than peace. Pretty much everyone outside our circle was considered an enemy. Non-Christians, other cultures, society, schools and colleges, the media, scientists, other religions, even Christians who thought slightly different to us. But Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now, there are, of course, passages that speak of our spiritual battle. But we have to read those passages carefully. Uh, the book of Revelation, for example, with its dramatic imagery taken from the Old Testament. You know, there's apocalyptic images of battles and wars and fantastical beasts rising from the sea and falling. But even here, amid that vivid symbolism in, in the book of Revelation, Throughout it, there's these little verses that say how the people of Jesus triumph. And it's not by killing and fighting, it's by patience, we're told, through prayer, through their testimony about Jesus, through their faithfulness to the end. Even, a couple of passages, say we triumph through our death. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul wrote that as Christians, we do not fight against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood means human beings, in other words. Human beings are not our enemy. Christianity does not succeed by piling up bodies and beating people up. Unfortunately, if you go back into Christian history, sometimes the church doesn't seem to have understood that. Our battle, Paul says, instead, our battle in Ephesians 6 is about overcoming, he says, uh, principles, uh, assumptions, destructive ideas of power, that so often we rush towards as a human race. Christianity, Paul is saying, comes into the world and challenges those assumptions we just run to, those ideas of power we're so often drawn to. Colossians 2, here in this letter that we've looked at, in, in chapter 2 of Colossians, we're told that on the cross, Jesus made a spectacle of the world's ideas of power, triumphing over them, it says, at the cross by dying for us. You know, us, we're the flesh and blood of the world. And the cross says, I think the cross is there as a spectacle to stop us chasing after wrong ideas of power. And instead, we come to Christ at the cross. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose, he said to, he kind of says he chose the cross to redefine the idea of power and wisdom. So that the cross itself, Paul says, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he goes on and he says, God chose the weak things to shame the strong, the things that seem like nothing to nullify the things that seem to be everything. It's like, I think, I think what those passages are kind of saying to us is, it, it, look, it's like we, we, come, we all come to the cross of Jesus, friends, enemies, sinners, saints, and we just stand there and we see Jesus dying for us all and it changes our view of everything. As 
We've read here, through him, God reconciles all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. In 2 Corinthians 10, we're told, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, Paul says there, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, but those that have divine power over arguments and assumptions, winning our thoughts, Paul says, so that we become obedient to Christ. And Paul says here in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, Paul said that when he was a prisoner, a Roman prisoner in the first century. He said it as a direct alternative, I think, to the so-called peace of Rome. And Paul could say this same thing in our world of conflict today. He could say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He could say that to those in Ukraine today who are living in fear and those in Russia. He could say it to those in Israel and those in the Palestinian territories today. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He could say it to those who are and have lived through times of conflict or those living through times of rest from conflict. Because the peace of Christ exists over and above whatever is going on around us at any moment in the world. Paul said it, remember, when he was a prisoner waiting to find out if he was going to be executed. But he said, the peace of Christ, let that rule in your heart. The peace of Christ now in us. That is what you're called to, Paul says. What is peace? Uh, well, in English, we often think of it just as the absence of something, you know, the absence of conflict or the absence of noise or busyness. In biblical thought, it involves more than just that. It stems, as you may know, from the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness. It kind of means fullness. It's about life being filled up with that which is good. So it's not just the negative, the absence of conflict. It's the filling, shalom, the filling with God's wholeness and life. Jesus brings you that, Paul says here. And the more of us who let this Jesus rule in our lives, the more his peace, his wholeness, his fullness will begin to fill this world of conflict. So peace doesn't just mean an easy life. It is an active thing in the Bible. It has to do with God being here, working through us and among us. This peace is about divisions being healed. It's about sins being forgiven. It's about love overcoming hatred. It's about reconciliation. His peace means redemption and hope. No matter how things have become, God's peace brings us hope of redemption. Peace in the sense, peace in the Bible, is a word that imagines things coming together as they should be, in such a way that life can thrive and grow because it's full of God's spirit. Peace is basically, in the Bible, it's everything that God is, everything that we see in Jesus, shared with us and through us as God's gift of grace. And that's the kind of thing, Paul says, in the church that should characterize us as his church. Chapter one, very ambitiously put it like this, God is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself, bringing things together in him, by making peace through Christ and his cross. It's the peace of knowing that God loves us so much that Jesus carried all your sin and mine. He gave himself for us on the cross. 
It's the peace of knowing that he would humble himself in order to kind of come here and pull us out of our mess and our conflict. A peace in which God says we're forgiven all our sins because Jesus has taken them away. The peace of knowing that Jesus is risen from the dead and in him is our resurrection as well. It's the kind of peace that means whatever's happening, we have Jesus. It is well with my soul, we sung. Whether it's peace like a river or sorrows like sea billows rolling, it is well with my soul. That's the peace of Christ. And this peace that we found in God, we can share with our world as a church. As we, as we share the good news of Jesus with those around us, including our enemies. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What does it mean for, for Christ to rule in us? It means let, let Jesus direct us. Let him shape us and our actions and our decisions like a king who you obey. To no longer be people who don't know what we're doing, but more and more as we follow Christ to be people who do understand the truth, the way, the life. To no longer, as if you look back in this chapter 3, to no longer be people, verses 5 to 11, no longer people ruled by malice and revenge and anger and hatreds, but now we become people, verses 12 to 14, who are shaped by the love of Christ, the compassion, the humility, the forgiveness, the patience, and the thankfulness of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as a church, because to this we were called. I want to close by reading you something. I mentioned again on Tuesday, if you were at the Bible study, about the testimony of German theologian Jürgen Moltmann. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann was a German soldier in the Second World War fighting against the Allies. And he, uh, during one battle, he wasn't a Christian at this point, and during one battle, he was taken captive and he came to the UK as a prisoner of war. Um, he was taken up to Scotland uh, as a prisoner of war. The war ended while he was a prisoner of war and he's, it, they remained a prisoner of war for a little while afterwards. Um, and he spent some time up in a, a camp, a prisoner of war camp in Scotland known as um, Norton Camp. And I want to read to you a little bit of Jürgen Moltmann's testimony, because I think this is, this is the kind of thing that the peace of Christ can do through his people when it reaches out to enemies. Now, I'm going to begin the reading where he's just explained how during their time in the camp and the war came to an end and it became more and more clear exactly what um, the Third Reich had been doing and, and the German... Uh, soldiers and captives became more and more aware they were shown pictures of Auschwitz and, and it dawned on them just what had been going on um, and so he says this for me the turn from humiliation to new hope came about through two things first through the bible and then through the encounter with other people in the Scottish labour camp together with some other astonished prisoners I was for the first time given a bible by a well-meaning army chaplain. Some of us would rather have had a few cigarettes. I read it without much comprehension until I stumbled on the Psalms of lament. Psalm 39 held me spellbound. 
It says, I was dumb with silence. I held my peace and my sorrow was stirred. But Luther's German is much stronger. I have to eat up my suffering within myself. My lifetime is as nothing in thy sight. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not thou thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. These were words, the words of my own heart, he says, and they called my soul to God. Then I came to the story of the passion, and when I read Jesus's death cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? I knew with certainty this is someone who understands you. I began to, began to understand the assailed Christ because I felt that he understood me. This was the divine brother in distress who takes the prisoners with him on his way to resurrection. I began to summon up the courage to live again, seized by a great hope. I was even calm when other men were repatriated and I was not. This early fellowship with Jesus, the brother in suffering and the redeemer from guilt, has never left me since. I never decided for Christ, as is often demanded of us, but I am sure that then and there, in the dark pit of my soul, he found me. Christ's God-forsakenness showed me where God is, where he had been with me in my life, and where he would be in the future. And then he goes on to say this, and it's this particularly that I want us to just take away with us. He says, the other thing was the kindness with which Scots and English, our former enemies, came to meet us halfway. In Kilmarnock, the miners and their families took us in with a hospitality which shamed us profoundly. We heard no reproaches. We were accused of no guilt. We were accepted as people, even though we were just numbers and wore our prisoners' patches on our backs. We experienced forgiveness of guilt without any confession of guilt on our part. And that made it possible for us to live with the past of our people and in the shadow of Auschwitz without repressing anything and without becoming callous. I corresponded with the Steele family for a long time afterwards. The other experience which turned my life upside down was the first international SCM conference at Swanwick in the summer of 1947, to which a group of prisoner of wars was invited. We came there still wearing our wartime uniforms, and we came with fear and trembling. What were we to say about the war crimes and the mass murders in the concentration camps? But we were welcomed as brothers in Christ and were able to eat and drink, pray and sing with young Christians who had come from all over the world, even from Australia and New Zealand. In the night, my eyes sometimes filled with tears. Then a group of Dutch students came and asked to speak to us officially. Again, I was frightened, for I had fought in Holland in the battle for the Arnhem Bridge. The Dutch students told us that Christ was the bridge on which they could cross to us, and that without Christ they would, would not be talking to us at all. They told us of the Gestapo terror, the loss, loss of their Jewish friends, and the destruction of their homes. We too could step onto this bridge with Christ, which Christ had built, from them to us, and could confess the guilt of our people and ask for reconciliation. 
At the end, we all embraced. For me, that was an hour of liberation. I was able to breathe again, felt like a human being once more, and returned cheerfully to the camp behind the barbed wire. The question of how long the captivity was going to last no longer bothered me. And then he just mentions about how they began to teach them. They recognize his gifts and in theology and helped him through college to study theology. And he just says these last few thoughts. He says, never again have I lived the life of the mind as intensely as I did that last semester of the theology school in Norton Camp. It was a marvelous, a richly blessed time. We were given what we did not deserve and we received of the fullness of Christ, grace upon grace. 